0: Welcome to Inside the Hive. I'm your host, Nick Bill, and I'm very, very excited today because the man sitting across from me, if it wasn't for him, I actually probably would not have a job in journalism, and I would probably be at Google making millions and millions of dollars. So thank you very much for that. <laughs> Great Larry, to see you, Nick. Larry and Yes. So Larry was uh, the business editor at the New York Times when I was there as a lowly art director designing pages, although I did have a lot of fun designing pages back then. Uh, and you were good at that, too. I, I was Good. It was fun. We I remember like taking pictures of toothpaste on the page and and birds and all these different things, um, and then one day by accident, Larry uh, Larry let me try out for this job as a bits blogger for the tech blog and. And fast forward, what is it? A decade now or something like that? Yeah, more than a decade, Maybe actually. more than
1: a decade. Yeah, and now you've written three books and magazine yeah. writer and everything. And
0: I, I'm, I'm good at pretending. I know what I'm doing. Uh, um, but it's yeah, it's, it, it, if it wasn't for you, I would never have had this opportunity. So thank you very much. And I'm very excited to have you on the show because you have a new book out, which is a fascinating book. It's called Billion Dollar Brand Club: How Dollar Shave Club, Warby Parker, and other disruptors are remaking what we buy, and so we should jump into it. Sure. So how how did you end up? What led you to the path of this book? It's an interesting story in itself.
1: Yeah. So you know, like a lot of people, uh, I've been was watching on my news feeds, uh, social media feeds. You know all these new products and where they were coming from, and you know I'd been a business journalist, as you know, Nick. So for- let me pause you for a second and just tell people
0: your the lineage of your business journalism. I mean, it goes it goes through the through the gamut.
1: I worked for the Wall Street Journal for uh, twenty five years. Uh, doing various jobs, reporter, editor. Uh, I worked for the New York Times as a business editor and then as a senior uh, editor, deputy managing editor. And then I was, the last few years of my career was at the Los Angeles Times as uh, a managing editor.
0: So you've seen the massive changes. Covered,
1: you know, the biggest stories around, uh, you know, the financial crisis of 2008, uh, the introduction of the euro currency in the early 2000s, the rise of Hey, Microsoft! <laughs>
0: <laughs> the rise and fall and rise. When you were again. very young, when yeah. you were
1: very young, The rise and fall and rise of Microsoft. Uh, you know, Google's IPO, uh, uh, Facebook, uh, all these things. And so, what?
0: So this story—it's kind of the cap on a lot of that. That right? So to talk a little bit about how you got there, and and and—it's so fascinating. Well, I think it
1: is one of the more interesting business stories of the past decade, and something that was, went largely unnoticed. It was like right in front of our yeah. noses, and people weren't really paying attention. So all these products are starting to, to spring up, and I'm thinking, like, who are the people behind these products? Um, and why do they think that they can succeed in taking on the corporate giants, the long-established brands that are really powerful? Uh, you know, if anybody would have asked you 10 years ago, if a razor company could come on and take 10 to 15% market share from Gillette, they would have looked at you like you were crazy. Absolutely. And, and they would have said, it's impossible. Gillette had 70% of the US market, not just for years, but for many decades. Uh, that just shows you how it was considered impregnable. But you know, you had people come along, and one of the things I think is most interesting is that the founders of these companies come from a lot of different places. And guess what? They knew very little about the products and the markets they were entering. So, Michael Dubin, founder of Dollar Shave Club, uh, you know, he was an out of work internet marketing exec- executive. Sleeping on a couch. Sleeping on a couch. Uh, the, the guys who started uh, Warby Parker, the eyeglass company, they were MBA students at Wharton. And they did it as a class project, figuring, you know, hey, it might be a business, but at least we'll get credit for it. <laughs> um, the, the woman who started Third Love Bra Company with her husband, uh, she had worked for some retailers and she wanted to become an entrepreneur. She, you know, didn't know exactly what. And one evening when they were going out, she was rummaging through her uh, bra drawer and couldn't find one that fit and felt comfortable. And so all of them, you know, came from these different places and say, hey, what they had in common, they saw a problem that needed to be solved.
0: And did they, when they started these companies, um, and we'll get into a little bit more of some of the companies we we'll cover in a minute, but when they started them, did they have this, any inkling of an idea that these things would become billion dollar companies? I mean, or was it just like, a, oh, maybe we'll, we'll like, you know, sell a few razors or a few bras or something like that?
1: I think that they had the hope that it would become a nicely successful company. You know, maybe a niche player in the marketplace. I don't think they had any idea that they were going to become as big as they were, uh, as they did become. But I think that there was a reason for that. And and if you get back to, remember I said they spotted a problem that needed to be solved. You know, in the case of uh, uh, Dollar Shave Club, Michael saw that Razors cost a heck of a lot. And, by the way, if you went to the store to get them, they were usually locked behind, you know, the counter and you had to ask for them. And Warby Parker, eyeglasses, you know, look how much they cost. They can cost $500, $700, depending on your prescription. Uh, But the key here was these problems have existed for a long time. Why now? What was it that came together now that made it possible for them not just to start these companies, but to grow them in a... Very fast in a big way, and that was technology. Technology changed and leveled the playing field.
0: And was it technology because there was a um, it was easier to build a business, or was it technology because it was easier to distribute things? So, for example, just to so Instagram, this is the famous story of a billion dollar company that sold with twelve employees or thirteen employees. And if you'd have tried to build Instagram ten years ago, or even you know back in the Microsoft days, you would have needed thousands. Um, what was the thing of of the technology that allowed these companies to to do what they did? So
1: there were several things. One, first of all, you could get products made in China that were good products uh, and uh, fill a need very easily. Chinese companies became very sophisticated in helping to design and build better products. Uh, So outsourcing was one of the unlocks, as it were. But most important was the internet as an ability to sell things. So go back to Gillette for a second. 15 years ago, if you wanted to compete with Gillette and and bring a new razor to market, you'd have to get shelf space at Walmart or at drugstores. But guess what? You walk into those places and say, hey, I got a new product, Dollar Shave Club Razors. You know, why don't you carry them? They look at you like you're crazy. Why do I want to carry a new brand that you know nobody has ever heard of and you also have to pay for that placement? Sometimes you do have to pay for often you have to pay for that placement. Warby Parker eyeglasses. Well, you know what optician is going to take a uh, uh, a flyer on carrying these new eyeglass frames that they'd never heard of? So the internet, however, has unlimited shelf space. you know you can you know, e-commerce made it possible to go directly to the consumer and bypass uh, the retailer, traditional retail chain.
0: What part of – I remember um, at the Times years ago, um, it was, we were in a meeting, and someone – we were talking about, I don't know, some yogurt company. This is, I, these are these random things that stick out in my head. And someone had made the, the – said the line, or maybe it was even the CEO of the yogurt company, that they didn't sell yogurt – uh, they sold the container that it came in and that, that the yogurt was free. And it was the, and really what you were buying was the thing to get there. And, and Gillette is, for example, was a company that kind of took advantage of its place in the market. And they used to say, we don't sell the the razor. We sell the razor blades and it's the right. refills that we get. And what part of, of, of the, of the success of some of these companies was the fact that the, the, the giants that they were trying to disrupt had taken advantage of the market and the consumer for so long and the consumer was fed up?
1: I think that's a big part. In fact, some of the most successful companies, uh, the direct-to-consumer brands, are in product categories that were dominated by a handful of players, whether it was uh, bras with Victoria's Secret, whether it was razors with Gillette, whether it was mattresses with uh, uh, Sealy and Serta. These were categories where very few players... Uh, existed, and you know took advantage, some people would say yes, took advantage uh, of the consumer, but getting back to the second kind of technological change with which you uh, uh, referred to a bit, Nick so i can 't get shelf space in a retailer, but I can sell uh, online, yeah, but how are you going to get attention so here was the other big thing that happened again, ten or fifteen years ago, you needed a big advertising budget television or radio advertising budget especially if you wanted to go national how big millions or tens of millions you know Gillette actually spends hundreds of millions of dollars a year but social media marketing made it possible for to spend only thousands or tens of thousands of dollars to reach the targeted market just the people who were most likely to buy a product from you again 15 years ago not possible it was pre facebook google was just on the scene of course uh, but this made it, made it possible for the first time to reach a broad audience for a very small amount of money so you could again bypass the traditional Madison avenue marketing machine
0: and was this that this was the thing that helped a lot of these companies jump? Start? Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. That was, you know, kind of the playbook that everybody saw and then ran with. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How is your social battery right now? Is it bursting with energy or drained? How do you recharge it? Have you ever reflected on those questions? Therapy can give you the self-awareness to build a social life that doesn't drain your battery. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Hive today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, so tell us a little bit about some of the, some of the things that they did to, 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 to pull this off.
1: Uh, just kind of uh, to go back just a second, as far as the—it the, helped that the existing players, like Gillette, like the mattress companies, were overconfident, oh, even of arrogant.
0: Oh, yeah, totally.
1: Even arrogant. Yeah. You know, they were like, What? I have to compete with this little guy, Dollar Shave Club.
0: Sleeping on a couch.
1: Sleeping <laughs> on his couch and his video where he says, you know, our blades are fucking great. And I talked to a former Gillette executive who said their reaction was, no, his blades are not fucking great. <laughs> in fact, a little tidbit uh, that I came across reporting my book that fairly early on, one of the investors in Dollar Shave Club went to Gillette and say, hey, would you guys like to make an investment? Remember, they were not exactly certain how big the company was going to be and Mm -hmm. how successful. Gillette's reaction, they didn't even take a meeting. It was like, why do we need you guys? So it was that arrogance that also helped open the door and clear the way for these products.
0: It sounds a lot like the media industry, a lot of these media giants that, that we've all worked with that have this belief that, oh, well, we're around, nothing else can come along, and along comes BuzzFeed and Axios and Politico and things that didn't even exist two years ago, three this years ago. This is
1: what disruptors count on, and this is why they can succeed, because often they fly under the radar for a while before it's too late.
0: So when you look at these companies uh, and there's, you know, they all have a different story and so on and so forth. What was some of the things that you found in your reporting that kind of were a through line between them? Was it like the clever marketing? Was it the, was it the fact that, that they were so hungry to win uh, that they saw this opportunity? Like, what was the thing that, that, that taught, tied them all together?
1: Okay, clever marketing, absolutely. You know, I've had people who say that they have watched the Dollar Shave Club video.
0: Explain it just briefly for people so they know what it is. Many
1: times. So uh, Michael Dubin, who had taken improv classes uh, just because he wanted to uh, when he was younger, um, decided to do a video when he launched his company. And the video was one minute and 30 seconds long.
0: I remember it. It's great. Yeah.
1: And, uh, uh, you know, you think it looks kind of impromptu everything in that video is scripted and acted out very well and it's very fast paced and basically the message is on point you know uh, who am I I'm Dollar Shave Club what is Dollar Shave Club I'm going to mail you to your door razors for a dollar a month yeah and are they any good no <laughs> They're fucking great. <laughs> From that, that was like the first fifteen seconds yeah. of, of the yeah. uh, uh, video, which he placed on YouTube, went viral. That video has been watched more than twenty six million times uh-huh. as of now, and he shot it for about five thousand dollars with the help of a friend who, you know, kind of was a director and did TV commercials, and that enabled him to bypass the traditional uh, uh, marketing machine, have to spend a lot of money. Warby Parker was the same, Third Love, all these companies uh, uh, were the same in figuring out, you know, kind of that marketing. Another thing that is, is really important I think is um, customer experience, as opposed to just customer service. Um, make, you know, and convenience. So the mattress companies, you know, foam mattresses, roll it up, deliver it to your front door. Uh, you don't have to go to a mattress store. And let me tell you, kind of going to a mattress store is cool. one of the worst it's experiences. Like the sad, it's like as sad
0: as going to the DMV.
1: <laughs> and, you know, they try to sell you something, you know, they try to upsell you and get you the most expensive thing. Mm-hmm. And by the time you, you get out of there, you know, you're just shaking your head. You know, it was, it was going to come right to your door. And oh, by the way, if you didn't like it, you can return it within 30, 45, 60 days.
0: So talk a little bit about, it's one of my favorite titles in the book, The Mattress Wars, because it's like The Mattress Wars. <laughs> like, uh, Talk a little bit about that and how that went down.
1: So um, actually, the uh, uh, before Casper, there was a company called Tuft & Needle. It was started by a couple of guys who were software engineers in uh, San Francisco. And they got tired of working for, uh, uh, you know, Tech companies. And they said, what we really want to do is uh, work for, do something where we're solving a problem. And one of them had bought a mattress and had a miserable experience. Like everyone. Uh, Yes. Right. Mm. Uh, Yes. Like everyone uh, a few years earlier. So they knew nothing about mattresses. So they, they got their mattress, you know, that he had bought, they cut it open and they re-engineered it. And they went around to figure out how to make, you know, a mattress. And it turns out, you know, mattresses, I mean, it's not making an iPhone right? It's it's pretty low tech. Uh, so they were able to, to build a very credible mattress early on and start selling it online. Casper started doing that, you know, not long after they did. And then Purple, another company started doing that and dozens of other companies. And so when I, one of the things uh, I talk about in the book is how uh, the barriers of entry fell in a lot of car- categories. And mattresses, the, the uh, uh, barriers of entry collapsed. I mean, it, it became like a, an
0: avalanche of different mattress companies. It became
1: companies. cutthroat. And one of the problems is that you had to then spend more and more on advertising, even, you know, kind of on social media. And on podcasts. And on podcasts. <laughs> As I <laughs> and, mentioned earlier, if it wasn't and, for the mattress and on, companies, and on, and on, there'd be no And you know, subways and billboards uh, to uh, try to get attention because there were so many out there. And it shows, you know... One, how much a market can be disrupted. So out of a annual sales of uh, about $16 billion a year retail in mattresses, if you go back five or six years, less than $50 million was on you know, inter- internet direct-to-consumer. It's now $2 billion. Think about that, how, much, you know, how disruptive that has been. So it's made it hard for some companies to make money, and Casper recently filed a pre-IPO public offering of its stock, showing that it's losing a lot of money. But Purple, another maker, is making money, is profitable, as is uh, uh, Tufted Needle, which was actually bought by Curtis Simmons um, uh, because it saw, you know, kind of, hey, these guys are onto something. We need to get some help in marketing our stuff.
0: When you look at these um, these companies that have disrupted these giants, how? What point? do the disruptors become the next giants? And, or, or is the future, is the future, it's, you know, it, five years from now, will the, the Dollar Shave Club be the next Gillette and some, some upstart somewhere making, great, you know. Great,
1: great, great question. Will, will they be going after them? You know. Great question. Well, I think that you are clearly going to have a bunch of billion dollar brands, uh, Dollar Shave Club. I mean, Harry's. Uh, which was another razor company started a year. Uh, oh, it's after. so
0: funny! All of these companies have advertised on this podcast at yes! one point in time. So. Great!
1: Great! <laughs> it started a year after uh, Dollar Shave Club and sold for one point three billion dollars. Mm. Um, uh, so you know you you have had many new entrants. Uh, Glossier is worth more than a billion dollars. Uh, Away luggage uh, worth more than a billion dollars. Um, a lot of other companies are approaching that. Third Love is, is very close to that level based on venture capital uh, valuation. Uh, so they are going to be you know, big companies and I think lasting brands because of their connection with the customer, which is really key here because of the customer experience that we're talking about. But I do think that because consumer products have been democratized as it were, because these barriers to, to entry have fallen I think that you're going to have more fragmentation in the future. I have a hard time seeing any razor company getting to 70% market share. In fact, you know, there have been even after uh, Dollar Shave Cliff, and Harry's, there have been a bunch of other niche razor companies started. One of them called Billy's, which is makes razors for women's, interesting was recently bought by Procter and Gamble, which owns Gillette. <laughs> Um, and, uh, Warby Parker and the whole category of eyeglasses, uh, you have a lot of niche players that have come along. There's one player called Lensable that basically, if you really love your frames and you don't want to have to get new frames, you can, you send them your frames, they'll make you the lenses and send them back to you. Okay. Uh, so you have all these niche players. And I think as a result, consumers are going to have far more choice than they ever had, but it's probably going to be harder to get, build a company that's going to have you know, thirty, forty, fifty percent market share. You may have more companies that you know kind of have ten, fifteen, twenty percent market share.
0: That's good for society. I think so too. But but the problem is, and and uh, if you can put your your business reporter editor hat on for a second here, we have a system, a corporate system where each quarter the corporation has to show more profits, and more profits, and more profits. And how does how does a Dollar Shave Club or, or a Casper or something like that, or how do any of these companies manage to do that? Is there, does, does at some point the, the is, is flat going to be okay, or is, is it always going to have to be more?
1: Well, uh, you know, that's a good question, Nick. I think that, you know, the expectation is that you keep growing. And in some c- categories, that could be hard, um, even in the razor category. So overall, Dollar Shave Club and Harry's have kept growing, even though fewer people are shaving. Like Nick Bilton, who has a beard. (laughs) Um, uh, So uh, these companies are going to have to look for other opportunities. Those companies actually are kind of going into different products. They're going into uh, cologne, things like this. Um, But uh, I I think that the new reality is that you're going to have to settle for maybe a little bit less growth. Mm. Than you had in the past. Uh, And one way that companies uh, might address this is by, you know, kind of teaming together, getting efficiencies, uh, you know, kind of joining forces. And uh, that can help too. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton.
0: When you, um, when you're reporting this story, I always love to ask people uh, this question about their books. Like what, what were some of the kind of the holy shit moments that you found that were just fascinating? These kind of moments in the, in the reporting or in the writing that you were just like, that's crazy. I
1: had no idea or, or something like that. So uh, one of the things for me, one of my favorite chapters in the book is called delivering the goods. It's about logistics. Okay. Like Logistics? Really? (laughs) How boring. Uh, But it turns out, of course, logistics is critically important to e commerce because the expectation, you know, 10 years ago, if you ordered something online, you know, if it got to you in five or seven days, you were perfectly happy. You know, now you think, five or seven days? Are you kidding me? You know, kind of, why isn't it here tomorrow or the next day? And so, you know, I went, you know, deep on that and spent time uh, at warehouses. I found a company called Quiet Logistics, it was a startup. Specifically, by a bunch of guys who had used to run warehouse companies, uh, and they got out of that business and decided to get back because they saw this opportunity with e-commerce to reinvent the warehouse. But it would have to be an automated warehouse so that you could pick things, individual items, ship them, you know, using UPS or uh, another shipper, kind of directly to the consumer, very fast. And if you go into these warehouses, you know, they're not like forklifts racing around and You know, kind of a lot of noise. They're actually very quiet because what they did was they have robots that do a lot of the racing around and getting stuff handed to them off the shelf by workers and then taking them to packing stations and then on to. And it's just, it shows the amount of innovation that goes on in pockets of industry that you aren't aware of. And, you know, that will end up. Kind of coursing through the economy in a lot of different ways. But one of the interesting stories there, and this is where, you know, kind of necessity is the mother of, of, of invention. Initially, these guys used Kiva robots. They were like the first generation uh, warehouse robots. Amazon, guess what, bought Kiva and then uh, decided not to continue servicing them after a certain point for those warehouses. So these guys had built their whole business model using Kiva, and they were like, oh, we're screwed. What are we gonna do? I'm sure Jeff Bezos was very sad. (laughs) So you know what they did? They went and built a robot company. Very specifically, and now that company is so successful, it's called Locust Robotics, that company is so successful that they're selling that to other warehouses. They split these two companies, they're selling to other warehouses. And so it's little stories like that that I just found really fascinating that, you know, who knew? When you look at these robot, these robots
0: kind of doing their work and thinking Man, that used to be people. Do you get kind of a and any thoughts about the future of, future of automation? I mean, we've we've seen in the selection cycle, big issue uh, that you know that only really one person Yang has been talking about it, and other people are kind of like, yeah, okay, I guess I have to. But a- every report you've read, I've read, you know, twenty million jobs in ten years, fifty million in thirty years. Uh, it's not just warehouse workers, it's soon going to be delivery workers, and this, that, and the other. Right. What were some of the things that you found as you I, were...
1: I think that's a big issue. And, and first of all, that is these robots make the warehouses more efficient. Yeah. And most of these efficient warehouses actually employ as many or more people as they did before. Those people have to... It's a less strenuous job. You know, kind of it's less demanding because they're not carrying the stuff. The robots are carrying the stuff. And so that's actually good for them. To me, that's, you know, kind of improvement. It means that the warehouses that are less efficient, you know, people may may lose jobs there. So, you know, understandably. But if you look back, I mean, automation is not something that is new. Yes, automation, you know, kind of with robots is new. But if you go back to, uh, you know, kind of the Industrial Revolution, uh, you know, people didn't make stuff by hand. They use all of a sudden equipment could be used for mass production. And I think that society is going to have to figure out how are we going to deal with this, just as societies back then figured it out. Because what you don't want to do is stop innovation that makes companies more productive, which leads for better products, cheaper products, better lives. Uh, What you want to do is figure out how to do it in a way that um, uh, you can create other types of jobs for people that will be good jobs. But, you know, I'm not saying that that's going to be easy. That's going to be a challenge.
0: Well, I think the thing that you've always heard is like, oh, you get to work alongside the robot. You'll work together, which is what you're saying. But eventually the robot's not going to need you. You know, eventually it's going to be... They're getting
1: better and better all the time. So right now the robots aren't good enough to pick things off the warehouse uh, shelves. You know, there's a person that picks them off and they're trying to develop those. But you know, kind of ideally, some other work is going to be created. Those people, but you know, kind of look, Nick. It's a big issue, and we have to think about it. But we shouldn't say, "Oh, we need to stop innovating."
0: No, I don't think we should. I just think I think you know, as 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 somebody who's covered the the massive disruption in the tech and media space for so long, it it was. There's a lot of. Um, uh, looking at shiny objects when new things come out and being excited by them and not thinking about what's on the, the other side and the implications. And I think, like, we've, we've all gone through what's happened in many, many industries from taxis to, to media to, you know, you name it. And um, over the last few years and, and, and the things you're, you've written about in your book, and, um, and we can see what's coming. We don't know specifically how, but we know if right. and um, and I, it's just a it's just something that you know I, I think that we as a society has a, have a responsibility to think about.
1: It would be great if we had an enlightened government that was forward thinking
0: <laughs> if only if only there was a way to vote people into office that could actually do things <laughs> um, when uh, when I look at when I read the book and I and I think about the companies that were disrupted, um, uh, and I think about the ones that have yet to be, um, what do you think is next? I mean, and and it's, this is a two part question. And do you think an Amazon can be disrupted? Is is it is every company capable of, of of having that happen, or is there a point where they become you know in the the great title of our friend Andrew Ross Orkin, like too big to fail?
1: So uh, on, on categories that uh, might be disrupted and haven't been totally disrupted yet, one things I think is really interesting is health care. So there is a chapter in the book about ear-go hearing aids. This is another category dominated by five players. very high-priced. Middleman is the audiologist. And uh, uh, these guys are selling, you, know, quality hearing aids, half the price, directly to consumers. They have their own audiologists and staff, and you can uh, take a uh, uh, hearing aid test online with them. It's for people with mild to moderate hearing loss as opposed to severe, and they would say to direct on that. But can health care be uh, disrupted in a good way? Uh, because healthcare is so expensive here. I, it would and be there- hard
0: to disrupt it in a, in a worse way than it already <laughs> is, but yes. <laughs>
1: And, and there's some other startups, you know, Hims and HERS. Uh, uh, <laughs> so that is one category that I'm really curious to watch to see what happens because uh, there are so many inefficiencies it's, it's there. The, is it
0: like a $3 trillion industry? Is that right? Yeah, so I, it, there's,
1: there's so many inefficiencies, yeah. too, that, that you can... Uh, uh, and as far as Amazon, one of the things that I think is interesting about Amazon and impressive about Amazon is how that company has looked around the corner and created new businesses that are quite different from the businesses that it originally was successful at. That hasn't been always true of tech companies. You know, uh, many of them have ridden a wave, gotten done very well uh, for many years, you know, sometimes a decade or two. And then somebody comes along with a better idea, and they haven't been... Uh, they've been focusing on incremental innovations within their category, within their marketplace, as opposed to seeing kind of more broadly. And I think that that has been the genius of Amazon. It started as a as a bookstore, and then it became the everything store, and then it you know uh, created devices. But the devices you know kind of were were you know kind of serving another end. And then it created uh, uh, you know Amazon Web Services. Uh, And all these things uh, make it, I think, potentially a different type of constantly evolving tech company that could be harder to disrupt because it is looking to constantly disrupt other areas itself. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. It's
0: fascinating. I remember when I was um, uh, working for you at the Times, and I I think it was right when Instagram was acquired. And I think if I remember, I remember that day, and I
1: I said, "Nick, we need some reporting help here. Can you get some good juice?" And I
0: remember uh, you had asked me to write a column about about why Polaroid or. Or Kodak or something hadn't done it, and I found this 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 article. In, dominant players, by the way. Yeah, dominant players. Of, this is dominant exact- players
1: in in the photography world.
0: And I found this. Um, uh, I think it was Kodak had already filed for bankruptcy chapter 11 or something at this point because of digital cameras. And I found this um, Harvard Business Review interview with the CEO. And he, there was this great line that he said. He was, said, we knew what was coming. And I'm paraphrasing here, of course. Uh, we knew what was coming. And we could see it. But we, our business relied on film. And he said, it was like we, were, we had someone told us we were driving at 90 miles an hour down the freeway. And someone told us we had to rebuild the engine. And we couldn't pull over to do it. And it seems like when you look at these stories in your book and what could happen and so on, it kind of feels like Amazon as a company. And I, I have a lot of beef with Amazon. I think the way that they go about their business is right. the fact that they don't pay taxes. There's a lot of stuff they do that's diabolical. But it does seem like one company where they are rebuilding the engine while they, while they are driving. Well put. Do you think it's because they built the company to be allowed to do that? Like they built the engine that, so they could pull things out as it was going? Or uh, like, can any company do that? Or is it just that they, they're a little bit different?
1: So I think uh, Jeff Bezos has built the company to do that. I think he encourages that. He encourages risk-taking and thinking out of the box. And could any company do that? Yeah, but that's really, really hard to do. It helps, by the way, that you're growing and you're growing rapidly, because that enables you to spend money on things that may not come to fruition, that may be a bust. It's like, okay, you know, kind of fine. That didn't work, we'll try something else. I mean, remember the Fire Phone, right? (laughs) You know, a a total bust. There probably are some companies that would have tried the Fire Phone and said, oh, you know what, we're no good at making devices. You know, kind of, but then you know, look at everything that's grown out of uh, Alexa, Alexa and Echo, and, Echo, and and yeah. and all those products. That is a huge business, which, by the way, is very complementary to their other businesses. But not a lot of companies would have had the patience, the intellectual smarts and ingenuity, and money yeah. to do those things. And it's all three of those things that have to come together. Uh, anybody can do it, but. You know, you can't do it, you know, like we're going to try it for the next month yeah. or so. It <laughs> has to be part of the DNA.
0: Um, last question related to your book. And then I have a couple of other questions before we let you escape. Um, retail has been massively affected by this. Um, you, I was in New York this week and you see, you know, even there signs of stores closing, uh, you go to uh, the Grove in Los Angeles, and, and Crate and Barrel is no longer there, and, and all these these things that have been there forever. You drive down any any street in America, and there's retail spaces that have been, you know, mattress stores that are going out of business sales, you name it.
1: Um, we're not going to lament the mattress stores, though. <laughs> What's that? We're not going to lament the mattress stores. No, we're not going to
0: lament the mattress stores.
1: But, but what
0: happens... As these companies come along and more and more of them do, what happens to retail in the future? What is, is it experiences? Is it, you know, I did see yes. recently, I was at an um, uh, a, a, a athletic clothing store and they had they had converted the upstairs into a yoga studio and they did free yoga classes. And it's a really smart move. Like, wow, okay, Absolutely. I'll go and I'll get a free yoga class and maybe I'll buy some yoga pants afterwards. And I'm not saying I was doing yoga because I don't do yoga, but... We're but
1: like wh- Starbucks offering free Wi-Fi. Yeah. it's always- giving you a reason to come in and stay there. So, uh, you know, one of the things when you start writing a book, especially something that is, you're doing it live, this is evolving. Um, when I really when I started looking into this a couple of years ago, um, there weren't a lot of the direct-to-consumer brands that had started offering... Uh, Kind of going to retail stores. Warby Parker was was among the first, but but not a lot. And soon I saw Away was opening a store. Third Love was doing a a pop up Dollar Bus. Shave Club now is kind of making it a little bit available. Um, uh, and why was this happening? I was curious. Why was this necessary? And what does it mean? And how is that experience different? Allbirds is another. Um, uh, that has open retail stores and so think of it this way in most categories 80 to 90 percent of sales are still done in physical retail stores and so once these companies reached a certain level they needed to figure out you know kind of hey how do we tap that bit of the market now i think that that bit will fall as e-commerce gets easier and easier and better Uh, but still physical retail is important um, but what these companies did when they uh, uh, decided to do that was like, hey, we want to have a different kind of experience in our stores. We want to offer something that is a little bit uh, feels, you know, kind of boutiquey. It's fun. You're going to look forward to coming into the store. Maybe there're going to be events. Uh, one of the companies that I, I profiled is actually a startup called Neighborhood Goods, which is like kind of trying to reinvent the idea of the department store and. It has a collection, a lot of the uh, direct-to-consumer brands, and it changes that collection every month or two so you're going to get something different. Uh, It has, you know, kind of discussions. It has yoga. It has all sorts of stuff going on to make it a little bit of a destination for you, not just a place to go shopping. Uh, Glossier, if you've not been to the Glossier store in uh, West Hollywood, Nick, you ought to go there because... Uh, it's like a hot place. They have a, a Glossier Canyon room where you know, kind of, you go in and people—it's just for people to take selfies and then to post on, on media, and it's kind of a fun thing to do. And often you have people waiting outside the store, and then they get in the store and they wait in line to get into the Glossier Canyon room to take to take uh, selfies that they can post. So I think this is the direction of retail as we go. You, retailers have to figure out, you know how am i going to make this a pleasant experience not yeah you know, i want to sell something but i really need to make it a pleasant experience to get you coming into the store
0: you um you've been covering business for for a long long time and you've seen the ups and the downs and the cycles and the recessions and the crashes and so on and when you look at the current economic market and the and you know and and wall street and uh and Trump and, and all the things that are going on. Uh, and, and also, I mean, bringing back to the retail, like Sears going bankrupt, you know, things that you thought would never happen. Do you think that we're kind of, that, that there's, I've had a, a number of people on the show in the last couple of years talking about a, an impending an recession and we're due for one and this, that, and the other. Do you think that, that that's what's going to happen or is this time different?
1: Yeah. Be Always be careful about this time it's different. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, I would have expected the economy to have more bumps than it has. It, we're now like 10 years into economic growth. Uh, now, granted, that was from a very low, po- low point after the financial crisis. So there was a lot of room to grow. Uh, but typically, you know, there is a recession every, you know, three, five, seven years. You know, kind of this is one of the longest, if not the longest period of sustained growth in a long time. And I think that there are a couple of reasons, but I don't think it will continue. The kind of, what, why are the reasons? I think one is that there is a lot of innovation that goes on in this economy still. Uh, and uh, in a number of industries, technology has led to increased productivity, and that spurs growth. I mean, that's just hugely important. For all the problems in our economy, uh, that's something that the U.S. has more than just about any other economy. They have a lot of entrepreneurial spirit. And part of that is because we've got immigrants coming here who really want to uh, make their mark, who want to do well. The other thing, and you may not like Trump, but, you know, kind of some of the stuff on Regulation and deregulation also encourages businesses to invest. Now, I don't want to kind of go into what of the regulation uh, is good or bad, but sometimes there can be, you know, kind of heavy regulation and a steep cost of regulation. And when it is tamped, tamped down a little bit, companies will invest more and that will help. Now that will end. You can't, continue, for you example, can't continue forever. Reduce, I mean, you can't continue reducing regulations because, yeah. uh, uh, you know, certain levels of regulation, I think even most Republicans would agree, are, are needed. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, I don't expect this to continue forever. You know, kind of, will there be, you know, kind of a huge recession? You know, I don't think we're going to have anything like 2008. I mean, that was a once in a lifetime. But we had 2008
0: event. because of the deregulation that had occurred
1: we did. And that was because, in particular, in a, in a market that was, uh, uh, in the financial markets, that was really out of control. And let's, you know, kind of, let, let's hope that uh, government officials have learned from that. And even if, as they ease some regulation, that they don't you know, just kind of open the doors and kind of let everything kind of go out, all caution to the wind. That would be a real risk and a problem. But I just, I, I, would, I would say that, you know, a recession like that, is a deep recession like that is unlikely? A recession in the next couple of years is likely.
0: It also depends who is president.
1: It could depend on that too.
0: Um, uh, last question for you. Uh, you have this this great book coming out. What, what are the topics you kind of are looking at next? Are, there, are they in line with this or?
1: Um. <sighs> You know, I've, I've got some other ideas. I think I want to take a little bit of a breather. I've been, you know, I know
0: people. it's so funny. You finish your book and everyone's like, what are you going to do next? We're, working,
1: <laughs> working so hard. Uh, you know, I'm interested in in uh, uh, a lot of stuff as, as a business journals and how things work, you know, uh, uh, for example, uh, the airline industry. You know, kind of, I, I've often thought that there might be a good story. You know, 15 years ago, all the airlines were uh, going bankrupt. Just about every one of them went, went bankrupt. And now they're among the most profitable businesses uh, around. Uh, how did that happen? And I actually have some inklings on that. I think that part of it has to do with um, uh, maybe collusion. I mean, you know, kind of they, you know, cause it seems like in lockstep they started adding well, fees is, and charging
0: fees. Isn't part of it... I totally agree with that. Isn't part of it that they? I was literally in the airport yesterday, thinking about this very thing. That how how their ability to to change price models is, I think, should be completely and utterly fucking illegal. Like, but,
1: but data analytics was, was uh, a, a key th- a point in driving uh, this. You know, kind of they they figured out you know yields kind of, uh, uh, so they could adjust their pricing yep. dependent. You know, you rarely get on a plane that is, you know, less than full. No, it's true. You, 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 um, every where plane. in the past, you used to get on planes that were, you know, uh, um, you know kind of 50% full or two thirds full. But what that means is, and, and I haven't done a kind of detailed analysis of this, but what it means is I think that airfares generally have been kind of held low, kind of adjusted for inflation because they have improved their efficiencies. Now, they've reaped profits from those efficiencies too, you know, kind of granted that. But, but there's a lot of interesting data analytics, and you know that's one thing I didn't mention about, you know, kind of uh, uh, key to the, some of the companies in Billion Dollar Brand Club. These companies had it at an advantage in some ways over the bigger players because they were dealing directly with their customers. They were collecting all the information, they could adjust their marketing, they could adjust their product, You know, Gillette's customers were Walmart. Yeah. You know, they weren't dealing... They didn't know exactly what their customers want. But when you have that data at your fingertips, you can do a lot with it. You can do a lot of good with it, and you can do, as we know, some not so so good with it. But I'm just kind of interested in how industries work, how they evolve, how they become more efficient, how they treat their customers. And I think the airline industry, because we all deal with it, you know, kind of so often... Could be an interesting one to take a look at, especially since there's such a dramatic, that's the other thing is look for, dramatic change, right? There has been dramatic change between 2005 and 2020.
0: I uh, would love to read that book. I hate the airline industry. I hate dynamic pricing. I, I, the whole thing makes no sense to me. Larry, thank you so much. The book is Billion Dollar Brand Club, How Dollar Shave Club, Warby Parker, and others Disruptors Are Remaking What We Buy. Larry Gracia, thank you so much.
1: Nick, pleasure.
0: Thank you to my guests this week, Larry Gracia. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Don't forget to leave a nice review while you're there, or just do not even bother leaving a review because no one wants to read a negative review. So there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work, and thank you, of course, to my sponsors this week, Apple Card, Blinkist, and Lightstream. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. Have a great week. America has a problem, one that is uniquely ours. On the new season of Long Shadow, I delve into the complicated history of firearms from the Second Amendment to the AR-15. I try to make sense of how we got here and how we might find a path forward. From Longlead, PRX, and Campside Media, in collaboration with The Trace, I'm Garrett Graff, and this
1: is Long Shadow in Guns We Trust. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.